so my friend David Goodman, uh, who has written all these great Star Trek books, who you've heard us talk about them on the podcast before, has been an executive producer for Family Guy for since the late 50s, a very long <laughs> time. And the first time, the first time you and I really met, David, was, was at, the, at the fundraiser for the school our kids went to, and you had, auction, you had offered as, as, a, as a live auction that the highest bidder could get their name and likeness drawn yes. into an episode of Family Guy. Yes. Which was a great, great thing to offer, and I and I think it raised a lot of money. But and I you I, I knew who you were, but we weren't really friends. But we were sitting next to each other at these tables, and I leaned over to you and I said, "If I if I get a really high bid, can you get me onto The Simpsons instead?" <laughs> <laughs> and you said, "Fuck you," and we've been friends ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or tablet or phone. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 563, Orville Family Guy. David Goodman has written in television for over 30 years, from The Golden Girls to Star Trek Enterprise, and has served as executive producer on several shows created by Seth MacFarlane, including Family Guy, American Guy, and The Orville. A Star Trek-like show where MacFarlane plays the captain of the USS Orville. Since I love David's books about the Star Trek universe, I wanted to talk to him about The Orville, but first I asked him how he ended up working with Seth MacFarlane originally. 2000 I was out of work Family Guy had been canceled once already had been on for two seasons been canceled but then Fox made a decision to pick it up for 13 more episodes and so I came on then I had a, a job interview uh, I, I actually was desperately out of work I, I had the year before I worked for somebody who didn't like me and it was making me making it very difficult for me to get another job writing on television. I was really in a tough spot. And I was in a parking lot uh, of, a, of a mall. And across the parking lot, I see this guy who I haven't worked with, uh, who I haven't seen, and somebody I'd worked with years before. I didn't know what he was doing, but like, I basically run through the parking lot and then start walking so that I can casually run into him. I didn't want to run after him and say, I need a fucking job. But I also I also wanted to make sure that I talked to him just in case. And so I run into him. His name is Dan Palladino. And Dan sees me. David, hey, great to see you. And he says, oh, well, you know, I'm working on something that, that that's kind of interesting. Maybe maybe we might get a pickup. Uh, you, this might be really good for you. So I, I get this job interview. It's his first show that I actually hadn't seen. It was Family Guy, and I walk in, it's Dan and Seth MacFarlane. This is young Seth; he's like 24 at the time, and you know, it was a it was a little awkward job interview. Seth had read a script that I had read, and I, you know, and I was sort of faking my way through because this is back in the age of a videotape, and I hadn't seen the show, and my agents didn't get me the episodes in time for the interview. And so I'm lying about seeing it, like I was basing it on stuff I'd read about it, and and 
uh, but I was just lying about it. Oh, it's so great. Oh, this is so much fun. You have so much fun there and blah, blah. And then the interview goes very well and I go home. But, you know, you never know whether you're going to get the job. I knew I was up against other people. And then I then I start watching it and the tapes come. And I'm just I'm literally whining to my wife about, oh, God, I got to get on the show. It's so good. <laughs> like I never I was laughing so hard and also crying because, oh, God damn it. Why? I really wish I'd seen these episodes before the job interview because it's so good. The show was just so good, and uh, and the tipping point I, I gather uh, for me getting the job was between me and and a writing team was that I was a Star Trek fan, <laughs> and Seth is a giant Star Trek fan, and it came up. Dan made sure to bring it up in the job interview, and we didn't talk too much about Star Trek in the interview. But then I got hired. It was in the third season, and basically I was being hired because Dan. Uh, Dan's wife, uh, Amy Sherman Palladino, created Gilmore Girls, and Gilmore Girls was starting up. And Dan, although he's working and running Family Guy, was planning to go, planning to leave. And if Family Guy got picked up past the 13, he wanted me to take his place. And so he was basically hiring me to replace him. So, um, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> so I was really being groomed to be the showrunner the show <clears throat> and that you know that 13 episodes was really formative i'd never worked in animation i'd worked a lot of years in comedy but i'd never worked in animation and so i learned a lot about primetime animation and then i um and then and then also learning about running writer's room which i'd really never done before and it was a it was a a room of uh, very dirty people i mean the dirtiest mouths ever and they're educating me on all these euphemisms for sex acts um and i don't know if you want me to get into that but it was very they would say something and, I'm, and then they describe it for me in graphic detail and i just sort of shake my head anyway so it's not um, it's not that they were unhygienic it's just that they went blue every time very blue is the bluest room i'd ever worked in i was never never considered myself a blue writer that was never my comedy really i would uh flirt with it but i was never <laughs> that and then you just sort of learn i learned that too i learned because that's a big part of that show is is racial humor misogyny um, yeah you know all those things are are a big part of family guy and you have to learn how to do them so you're being funny but you're also probably going to be offending a lot of people and and, and the show was canceled after that 13. Seth and I stayed friends. Uh, and then it's kind of a well-known story, which was that at that time, uh, TV series hadn't been put on DVD. This was, DVDs were new, and the companies, the, the studios, had not figured out that people would buy whole seasons of television shows on DVD. That was that was a new thing, and one of the first shows to have its full seasons put on DVD was Family Guy. And one of the unique things about it was the demographic of people who watch Family Guy, whenever Family Guy aired, they moved the time slot around a bunch of times, but wherever it aired, it got the same number of people. And and a, and, and a big part of that number, that the big demographic that watched Family Guy were young men, like men in 
you know, 12 to 25. That, that's kind of the sweet spot of Family Guy <clears throat> fans. And it just so happens that that same demographic were the demographic that started buying DVDs. Mm. So it was literally like that, that uh, confluence of, uh, you know, that, that coincidence led to when the Family Guy seasons were put on DVD, sales of 2 million units. Uh, it was like, and suddenly the studio realized maybe we shouldn't have canceled this thing. And the advantage of doing animation is your actors don't get older. Uh, I mean, they do get older, but the characters don't, right. They can stay the same age and they could bring the show back and they did. And all the way through those years, Seth would say to me, no, the studio's talking about bringing the show back. I want you to come back and run it with me. And I'm like, yeah, it's not coming back. Come on. That never happens. Come on. And, uh, you know, and, and then and then when it did come back, I kept saying to him, they're not going to let you hire me as a showrunner. I just know it. And, you know, he makes he makes all dreams come true. So uh, I went back in 2004 and ran the show with him for <clears throat> six years um, and then <gasps> left and then came back a few more times after that. Well, and it's I, I I've seen it said both as um, praise and a criticism that Family Guy's humor is sort of uh, a scattershot. Just throw every possible kind of joke at the wall and see what sticks, and they somehow all stick. Is that is that a fair description of Family Guy? Uh, you know, it's interesting because it 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 takes a that description. I think somehow. Uh, undervalues the skill of the writers who write that show. And I'm not really even just talking about myself. That that writing staff is uniquely talented. And the popularity of the show isn't just that it's uh, funny. uh, It's that it's how it's funny. That that there's a million things going on in a Family Guy episode. It's sort of what you're saying, but there's also – there's a method to it yeah. and there's a, it's not, it's not scattershot. It's, there's a, there's a method to this, the, when family guy does its job well, there's a method to how it's telling this sort of sitcom story with these sort of offshoots of gags. And when the show hangs together, the best episodes of family guy are amazing things to see because there's a story, you're following a character arc. And then there's all these different gags, TV references, um, strange strange political references, <laughs> racial jokes, you know, that's all, um, there's a sort of a variety of things. We don't, we try not to repeat the same kind of joke in an episode. You want different, if, if you've got a, a, a Knight Rider reference, you're probably n- not going to do an A-Team reference in that same episode. You know, you're not, you know, there's, there are rules uh, that govern. And so it gives the appearance of chaos, but in fact, it's, it's very, uh, crafted. Well, and that's my favorite kind of stuff where the oldest, broadest, most varied kinds of gags are all in the service of story. Right, right. This is Christopher Moore, the author of Fool and the Serpent of Venice, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? 
We head to Singapore this week for performances of the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged revised. Our U.S. fall tour of all the great books abridged, William Shakespeare's long lost first play abridged, and the ultimate Christmas show abridged continues in two weeks with performances in West Long Branch, New Jersey, Aiken, South Carolina, Davis, California, Laramie, Wyoming, Asheville, North Carolina, Maryville, Tennessee, Somerville, New Jersey, San Jose, California, Algona, Iowa, Reston, Virginia, and La Mirada, California. Our new book, Pop-Up Shakespeare, is on sale in the UK and Australia and available for pre-order in, in the States via Amazon and all the usual online outlets. It is published in the States on October 3rd. Next winter, we'll be performing William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged off-Broadway at the New Victory Theater in New York City. And next June, we'll return to the Pittsburgh Public Theater to close out their season with our production of William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with writer and executive producer, David Goodman. So you've worked with Seth for many, many years, and you've been the executive producer on a couple of his other projects. Uh, yeah. including the new show, The Orville, which just premiered on Fox uh, this right. week, or, yeah, last week. Um, what is, other than running a writer's room, what, do, what, what all does an executive producer do when these are all Seth MacFarlane's babies? Do you know what I'm asking? No, absolutely. I know exactly what you're asking. The answer is help him, help him do his job. So, for instance, Seth casts his shows. But then there's going to be moments where we need somebody and you're throwing in names, you're throwing in uh, or, uh, you know, Seth writes a script, but we're shooting the show and I'm saying, I think we could beat this joke. Let's let's, you know, you know, so that there's a way in which uh, I, I'm, I'm one of his partners. I'm somebody he can rely on to help, as you say, write the show Um but then everything else that goes on from designs of sets to uh, casting to music to, uh, you know, Seth and I talked a lot about the music for the show. And and we worked closely with Bruce Broughton, who created the theme, which, you know, just a great theme. I don't beautiful. Know if you've heard it. it is really beautiful. And, but, and that's obviously Bruce created that theme, but but it was fun to talk to Seth and Bruce about what that theme should be. Uh, and, you know, so that's the kind of thing that you do is you, you become, uh, you know, I get, I get, I get none of the, I get, I get little of the credit. And, and then if there's a problem, probably a lot of the blame, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, it, he's a great, he is a genius. It's like, it's not, I'm not, not really an exaggeration because when you work, work with him now, on and off for the last, I don't know, 18 years, 19 years. And uh, there isn't anybody like him in terms of somebody who does everything that he does. You know, the the the, the alien character, the Mocklin character, started with a drawing that he did of what he wanted the character to look like. And the makeup is, is really very close in a lot of ways to that original drawing. Um, the drawing of the ship, the design of the ship, you know, we, we went back and forth on all these designs trying to figure out and then Seth does this little pencil drawing he and it, it's the ship you know it's so there's just a way in which like there's just this kind of genius about him and I am 
so fortunate that I ran into Dan Palladino in that parking lot <laughs> in 2000 because it's it, it completely re revived, saved my career to have this to get to work with Seth and and on great stuff. Yeah. Stuff I'm enormously proud to be a part of. Enormously proud of my work at Family Guy and the short time I was an American Dad. Loved working there, and then now to be on the Orville is just like it's kind of a dream. Well, yeah, you and Seth working on a show <laughs> as inspired by Star Trek as it seems to be. You guys must just be kids in a candy store. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's such a fun thing to get to do because we're not doing Star Trek because there's so much more humor in this in this piece than there was on Star Trek. Obviously, there was humor in Star Trek, but the, this, the, the character interactions here are much more comedic. And that just, that is, it, it's kind of amazing to walk around these sets and, yeah, it's a bit of a kid of a candy store feel to it. Was there, was there ever discussion of it being a 22-minute comedy versus an hour-long uh, dramedy, I guess? You know... Uh, the thing, the, the thing about making it a comedy is it, it limits you in terms of your storytelling. You, the stories are not going to be that dramatic, and you're going to slip probably more into parody. Mm -hmm. And there was a way in which you want to create for the audience a world that they want to go back to. And if there's a sense that this is not a real world, and I think a half hour would make it feel less real, than an hour, uh, and by doing dramatic stories, that adds reality. I mean, the argument in the pilot between the husband, Seth and his first officer, who's his ex-wife, when she comes back aboard the ship, um, you're not going to write that scene that way in a comedy. There's comedic elements in it, but it gets to this moment of like, what the f*** are you doing here? Right. This is, you know, you're ruining this thing that I want. And that just adds this sort of reality to it that um, I think that makes the audience more engaged. Well, and it's yeah, it, what you say about it be it it could be in danger of becoming a parody. It, it seems right on. I mean, in the I've only seen the first episode, but there were there were to me lovely moments of not parody but satire of right. Star Trek. Like even you and I are skyping now, and I I want right. you to move the screen just slightly to the right. There you go, centered. <laughs> that was a lovely bit. On the viewfinder. Um, that's well. That's that's Seth, and that and and he says that that the the script kind of started with that scene. Really, like Interesting. that 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 idea was one of the first, if not the first, sort of idea that he had of like what the type, what the tone of the show was going to be. One thing I love that you haven't done is you haven't done what Star Trek was doing in its later series, which is to find some hot babe and put her in a skin-tight right. uniform. You've got Adrian Palicki, um, who's just wearing a normal uniform like everybody else is wearing. Right, right. Well, I mean, we get to see Adrian in different costumes later on, but, the, but right. the, her uniform, you know, is professional, and the, the she's a hero, too. I mean, she's a, her character is as, is as heroic as, as uh, the captain. And do you and do you envision um, a, a five year mission here, seven twenty? God willing, <laughs> I don't know. I you know the ratings just came back. Our first night ratings were really good, solid. We hope people keep showing up. I mean, uh, you know the show will 
the show will go on if the audience shows up, you know, and it's a hard, hard business we're now because so much on 400 television shows on, how do you, how do you get people to watch what you're doing? I think Seth kind of created a formula that looking at the first night's ratings worked in terms because our, because the reviews were terrible. I don't know if you saw any of the reviews, but we got a lot of really bad reviews and it was really, um, upsetting because i i went into this this is a good show we're doing a good thing here why and you know i think that i don't know i it's i i i hate to say that the the press has some has it out against seth but i think they do because mm. a lot of these reviews were sort of unfairly negative and then the audience shows up and has a really positive response so to me however the critics feel they weren't in touch with the majority of the audience we got Really, very positive response from people who saw it. The only thing that bothered me was that every character seemed to have the talk in the same sort of broy way. Um, <laughs> that was the only thing I noticed. Every character did. Well, most of the male characters, which I, think, I found I think, funny. I think two male characters talked that way. It felt like the captain and the two guys at the helm. <laughs> I don't think. So. All right, well, it doesn't matter. We can argue about it later. I, I, <laughs> and I'll cut that part anyway. Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think Seth talks that way. Well, it's interesting that you th- felt that way. But Only anyway. that he has a very, um, yeah, maybe he's not bro just contemporary. He has yes. a kind of a... No, that's, yeah. And that's a piece of it. That, that, and you'll see that also as the episodes go on, the women also talk contemporary, in that contemporary way as well. Yeah, which, which I is, do... Which I actually do like, which is like we're, we're not in – this is part of, the uh, I think, the concept of the show. Humanity hasn't evolved. Right. That's right. Humanity That's right. is it's, – it's today's people in 24th century, whatever century it's in. Well, the other thing, too, is like, you know, the, the Star Trek shows is almost a Shakespearean quality to the drama and how people talk and act. Um, and a lot of Shakespearean actors actually – are in Star Trek, right? Uh, because they could handle that's the formality of it. And here, um, that's not the case. There's a there's an informality to the characters and how they interact. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Send us your 22-minute dramedy via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also engage with us and other fans on Facebook or Twitter. You can find easy links to all these social networks at our website, reducedshakespeare.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener and David Goodman at David A. Goodman. Thanks, as always, to Red Shirt Matthew Croak, Web Surfaces by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Regina Cheatham. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Christopher Moore, author of Lamb, Serpent of Venice, Fool, and a brand new novel that I just read that I'm not allowed to tell you about since it won't be out until the next spring of 2018, but it's very cool. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 563 1689ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. I had a better shot of being cast on one of the Star Trek shows because of my Shakespearean influence, and less of a shot to be, to be cast in this one. We can put some makeup on you. Maybe we'll figure out some. I'll we'll be an alien. Some. I'll totally be an alien. <laughs> this podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.